Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams, and today we're heading back to Friday, the 1st of July, 1932. That was the day the ABC was born, and like most births, it came with a bit of angst and a bit of pain. Winter 88 years ago was especially bleak because Australia was pretty much at the worst of the Great Depression, with unemployment having risen to around 28% of working age men. Yet while people scrimped and saved to survive, cutting spending on alcohol, tobacco, sporting and movie tickets, radio as a cheap distraction was actually increasingly popular. Licensed listeners had grown by about 60,000 to 360,000 in the past few years. And that was despite Australian radio having gotten off to a really rocky start thanks to government bungling. In May 1923, Australia introduced one of the silliest ever pieces of telecommunications legislation with its sealed set licence system. This was actually the harebrained scheme of influential businessman Ernest Fisk, father of Australian radio, who we'll be hearing more about next week. So Fisk's sealed set system worked this way. You'd buy a radio and then pay an annual subscription fee of between 10 shillings and £4.04 shillings, depending on how many stations you wanted to listen to. Postmaster general technicians would then adjust and seal your radio so it could only receive the stations you'd paid for. And you'd agree not to fiddle with it to get all the other stations. Of course, people were easily able to convert their sealed set radios to open ones and the government in 1924 got rid of the system and introduced a more sensible two-tiered radio system. Under this new setup, there were A-class stations, which would be paid for by listener licences, and B-class stations, which would run on advertising revenue. People were happier with this system, and by the end of the decade, some 300,000 people were A-class license holders, paying an annual fee of around 24 shillings. The problem was that the A-class stations focused their efforts on cities, where there were more people to pay license fees, and that left many regional and country listeners out in the cold. To remedy this, it was decided that the government would take over the A-class stations to form a conglomerate national network, and programs would then be provided by private contract. The three-year tender for this was won by the first ABC, that is, the Australian Broadcasting Company, owned by Greater Union, Fuller Theatres and a Sydney music-selling business called J. Albert & Son. This ABC's boss was Greater Union honcho Stuart Doyle, and from 1929 he promised a lot for listener licence fees. Better relay stations would improve signal, there'd be dramatic radio productions, and dedicated orchestras for musical presentations. But Stuart Doyle and his ABC under-delivered on these promises, and that increased pressure for a truly public-funded A-class station network that'd give people value for their licence fees. And this came about after Conservative Prime Minister Joe Lyons was sworn in in January 1932. This new ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, wasn't only going to be about entertainment, it was also going to be about the elevation and education of the population. That all sounded good, but there was a lot of opposition. 
Some sectors of Australian society were worried that the cultural elite was about to foist classical music on the ears of the masses. Other people were afraid of the opposite, that the expansion of radio would dumb down Australian society by tempting us away from thoughtful contemplation. Sporting organisations feared that live broadcasts might hurt their attendance figures. Meanwhile, musicians who were already suffering the double whammy of the depression and the loss of work in cinema orchestras as silent movies went the way of the dodo were also against radio because people would listen to tunes at home for free instead of going to concerts. An unexpected radio supporter, as quoted in Alan Thomas's 1980 book Broadcast and Be Damned, the ABC's first two decades, was Sydney Anglican Reverend R.B.S. Hamilton. This mighty man of the cloth reckoned that the ABC would help to do God's work and said, quote, Christ may quite likely return within the next 20 years, maybe 10, and when he does, he will probably tell the world by radio. One of the bodily difficulties that surrounded the return of our Lord has been removed with the discovery of the wireless. Prime Minister Joe Lyons was a believer too, just less in the return of JC and more in the example of the BBC, which he thought that Australia should seek to emulate. On the 9th of March 1932, the Australian Broadcasting Commission Bill was introduced into Parliament, and it wasn't well received. Much of the criticism centred on the control that was going to be exercised by the Postmaster General. His office would retain control of technical services, could ban some types of broadcasts, and had the right to accept sponsored programs. Former Prime Minister Billy Hughes demanded that the ABC be independent of the Postmaster General in the same way the BBC was in the UK. Faced with this backlash, the Prime Minister watered down the Postmaster General's control, at least superficially. Regarding the question of where revenue would come from, the government clarified that the ABC would be federally funded and receive 50% of monies collected from licence fees. The ABC was not going to carry advertisements and any program produced by a third party could not be broadcast if it was deemed as being used as an advertisement. These amendments were apparently actually at the behest of commercial newspaper and radio owners who wanted to ensure that their precious advertising dollars weren't siphoned away by a state-sponsored competitor. And the Australian Labor Party actually opposed this because it then wanted an ABC with advertising. After a couple of months of tussling, the ABC bill was passed on the 17th of May 1932. Then the question of who was going to be the first chairman excited a lot of interest, with Stuart Doyle, Billy Hughes and even Banjo Patterson said to be in the running. In the end, it went to Charles Lloyd-Jones, chairman of department store behemoth David Jones. Charles Lloyd-Jones got the gig not just for his business acumen, but also for his support of the arts and philanthropy. He was certainly a credible choice, but it didn't escape the notice of critics that he was also pro-liberal and anti-Labour, as were all four of the ABC's other commissioners. So, contributing to the topsy-turviness of the ABC's conception and birth, the management of the broadcaster initially, and for years afterwards, was perceived as having an anti-Labour bias. In the book Broadcast and Be Damned, Alan Thomas wrote, Quote, the government always asserted it was mere coincidence that most commissioners held views favourable to the government and once made the astonishing remark that the type of person required to run the ABC was unlikely to be found among the ranks of Labour supporters. 
Whatever its boss's political alignments, the ABC's mission statement was to reflect and improve the public's taste, to spread knowledge and to educate in keeping with Christian ideals. And this had to be done in an appealing fashion. Or, as its first annual report would put it, quote, Enlightenment must come through entertainment. Given the failures of the ABC under Stuart Doyle, Smith's Weekly was sceptical, asking its readers, quote, Are you hoping for better things? You are, because licenses are being taken up at the rate of thousands weekly. Will you get better service? It is promised to you. Watch and pray. The Sydney Mail newspaper took a similar view. Quote, it is not to be anticipated that the new Broadcasting Commission will make such a wonderful difference for some time to come. All this talk of a national orchestra indeed sounds very altruistic. It is questionable whether the majority of listeners in would be pleased with the necessary expenditure to maintain a national orchestra such as has been suggested. Everybody does not wish to hear orchestras all the time. The ABC radio network would comprise the 12 A-class stations, 2FC and 2BL in Sydney, 2NC in Newcastle, 2CO in Corowa, 3LO and 3AR in Melbourne, 4QG in Brisbane, 4RK in Rockhampton, 5CL in Adelaide, 5CK in Crystalbrook, 6WF in Perth and 7ZL in Hobart. And the ABC's inauguration of this network was set for the evening of Friday the 1st of July 1932. That afternoon, though, it was business as usual for local A-class stations. Sydney 2FC listeners could enjoy a talk from a St John Ambulance representative about first aid, while over at 2BL, Mrs F.V. McKenzie gave a talk on the care of goldfish. In Melbourne, 3LO listeners tuned in for a talk from Mr T.S. Whaley called Recollections of Aroma, and Mr Cook lectured on Rock and Water Gardens. But at 8 o'clock that night, listeners across the country all heard the chiming of the bells at Sydney's GPO, in imitation of and homage to the clanging of Big Ben's bells in London that ordinarily began A-class stations' morning broadcasts. Then announcer Conrad Charlton said, This is the Australian Broadcasting Commission. Though this broadcast was relayed by Sydney's 2FC, it was a tri-location and tri-partisan inauguration. Federal Labor leader James Scullin spoke from Melbourne, ABC chairman Charles Lloyd-Jones and Country Party boss Dr Earl Page spoke from Sydney, and Prime Minister Joe Lyons spoke from Canberra. Doing the lion's share of the talking, the Prime Minister took the opportunity to briefly review the history of broadcasting in Australia and to express thanks for the work of the previous ABC. Prime Minister Lyons noted there were now more than 360,000 radio licences in Australia and, quote, Broadcasting should undoubtedly be a means of enjoyment for their leisure hours and in aid to culture as well as add to the gaiety of the nation. Of the ABC's aims, he said, quote, as the British Broadcasting Corporation led the world, so we hope that the newly established Commission will succeed in coordinating the technical and program activities of the various national stations to provide steadily improving programs to give the public both what it likes and what it needs. Lest listeners get their hopes up too much, Charles Lloyd-Jones took it on himself to warn them during this broadcast that the ABC wasn't going to be the BBC because Australians couldn't compete with the, quote, high broadcast standards of London. 
This first national ABC broadcast lasted just 12 minutes. Then local stations went back to their various Friday night musical selections. The new ABC experience didn't involve much in the way of immediate change for listeners. Stations typically broadcast as they had, from 7 in the morning until about 11.30 at night, with several lengthy off-air breaks. A day's program would be more than 60% pre-recorded music, with the rest of the time devoted to news and commentary, sporting calls, weather, live music, women's and children's programming, and of course, religious devotionals. What was different, though, was that now there might be, in Melbourne, a broadcast of a Sydney operatic production, or, in Sydney, a lecturer of interest from a noted personage speaking in Melbourne. Here's how Charles Lloyd-Jones opened his review of the ABC's first half-year of operations. Quote, No revolutionary upheaval in respect of broadcasting programs has been attempted during the first six months of the Australian Broadcasting Commission's control. Nevertheless, the Commission believes that the policy adopted has already resulted in a substantial all-round improvement. He was perhaps being a little too modest because his report did note that the ABC's existing orchestras had grown in Sydney and Melbourne and that a lot of resources had been put into rehearsing, contributing to an increased quality of musical presentation. There'd also been an emphasis on local composers, while visiting artists had been given the opportunity to reach audiences who wouldn't otherwise have heard them. Additionally, during that six months, there'd been dozens of operas, musical comedies, reviews, dramas and concerts broadcast to ABC listeners across the nation. At this critical time in the Great Depression, the ABC did provide a lot of work for local singers and musicians, with some 17,000 appearing on the service in its first year of operation. Morale-boosting community singing sessions were also popular, broadcast live from charity concerts held at town halls. The ABC's sports broadcasts also remained popular, though police particularly objected to race calls because they reckoned they encouraged SP gambling. But where the ABC was far weakest was in its delivery of news. Though the ABC Act had allowed for news gathering, the service didn't have the funding for such activities. And its conservative-leaning commissioners weren't about to agitate for it and risk antagonising the government's powerful media mates. These were the likes of Keith Murdoch, Frank Packer and Hugh Dennison, and they had a near monopoly on the news business. And ABC delivering news for free was an anathema to these men who'd made millions out of daily newspapers. Yet the ABC's remit included news delivery. So, in a pathetic compromise, the government allowed the newspaper and news agency owners to provide the ABC with limited access to their reporting. The catch was that the ABC's news bulletins had to be very short and very infrequent. The ABC also wasn't permitted under the agreement to add to reports or even to fact-check them. As such, ABC news bulletins would often just feature a man reading bits of that morning or evening's newspaper. Despite all of these manoeuvrings and obstacles, the ABC quickly won acceptance with audiences. But it did acquire a bit of an image problem, and that was thanks to announcers using plummy British tones and unfailingly being photographed behind the mic wearing formal evening attire. It wasn't a great sound or a good look for a service that was supposedly for all Australians. Precise audience surveys weren't available then, but it was estimated that the ABC initially reached about 400,000 people, which wasn't bad given that the population was then 6.5 million. 
88 years later, with a population four times that size, the ABC's reach across radio, television and digital is proportionally even bigger. And it's absolutely huge at times of national significance. According to its 2019 annual report, the ABC reached 10 million people during that year's federal election week. And it's likely we'll see similar figures when numbers are available about bushfire and COVID-19 coverage. To me, it's interesting looking back at the ABC's origins to see who supported its creation and under what conditions and for what reasons, who opposed it and what their motives were, and how those have changed and sometimes stayed the same across the past nine decades. As the last week has again shown, ABC funding, its role and responsibilities are a source of constant debate, particularly on the conservative side of commercial media who still view it as a competitor for ears and eyeballs. What can't be challenged, no matter where you sit on the political and cultural spectrum, is that Australian listeners got over those early dodgy news bulletins, the plummy tones and the penguin suits, and came to consider the ABC as our most trustworthy news source. And this is a fact that's borne out in survey after survey. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.